we are delighted to be here this morning. One month ago, I was driving in Ethiopia with a coworker named Tadessa. Tadessa and I were driving to one of these countryside trainings, and we're passing through a nondescript town. And Tadessa very casually looks over at me and says, a few weeks ago, four evangelists were severely beaten in this town and forced to leave. In Ethiopia, the church sends out evangelists to be church planners. Although Ethiopia might claim to be Christian, oftentimes that's in name only. And when Christians start to truly live the Christian life and start to proclaim the name of Christ and the reality that we are sinners in need of a savior, there is a response that that town, that that individual gives. If you as a Christian live your life as God calls you to, if you as a Christian live the righteous Christian life, not in your own strength, but in the strength of the spirit, if you as a Christian are not ashamed of Christ and you share the gospel, there is a response. The world always responds to Christians and to the Christian message in some way, shape, or form. It might not always be severe persecution, which our brothers experienced in Ethiopia when they were beaten and kicked out of the town. But it might be a degree of persecution. In high school, there's a lot of peer pressure for you to sacrifice your relationship with God, to sacrifice that walk of righteousness, of holiness before God in order to be accepted by a peer group, in order to be cool, when in reality you've already been accepted by God and his opinion's the only one that counts. But that persecution is there because you as a Christian living a righteous life, you as a Christian believing and sharing the gospel, invite a response. And high schoolers can be very cruel if you shine light on their sin. If you make them feel bad for their sin. But it does not stop with high schoolers. Many of us are adults here. In the workplace, our witness, our life might invite some type of persecution. Or it might invite commonly what I call just an indifference. Where they see you as kind of an oddball. Like, okay, Nancy, Chad, y'all, y'all are Christians. That's good for you. Um, thank you for sharing that message. I'm glad that's true for you. So just this response of indifference from the world, or it, it might be misunderstanding where they see your life as a husband and a wife or a daughter or a son or an employee. And they think you're just a goody two shoes. I, I don't get you. There's this misunderstanding why you live the life that you live when it's so different than the world. They think you're trying to earn some other person's favor or maybe be a brown nose and get a raise from the boss when they don't realize that you have encountered the living God. And when you encounter the living God, you are changed. You are different from the world. So Christians and the Christian message will always receive some type of response from the world if you are living the Christian life. If you are sharing the gospel, 
If you are simply blending into the world, then we need to talk after this sermon. <laughs> so today we are going to talk from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22, about how we conduct ourselves as Christians who love Jesus in this world that at times is hostile, but in our context very often is indifferent or misunderstands us. How do we conduct ourselves? How do we live our lives? Again, the text is from 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. This morning I will be in the ESV. So if you have an electronic version, turn there. And in today's sermon, we are going to talk on being neighborly, revering Christ, and anticipating God's vindication. Being neighborly, revering Christ, and anticipating God's vindication. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Our first point is being neighborly. Read with me, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We're going to stop there. In these few verses, 8 through 12, we see God calling us to do good and to promote peace in our social networks. And as a result, we are blessed with peaceful relationships and intimacy with God. Again, we are to do good and promote peace. And in doing so, we have peace with our neighbors. And in doing so, we have this intimacy with God. In these verses, Peter gives us three commands beginning in verse 10, in which he quotes Psalm 34. The first command in verse 10, he tells us, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now that's very straightforward. So the context of this is how we use our words. Peter gives his explanation, his exposition of this verse in verse 8 in which he says have have unity of mind unity of mind to have unity of mind is akin to harmony it's to be harmonious it's to be willing to be humble and in fact we see that word humble mind also there in verse 8 so what Peter is doing is he's connecting unity of mind or harmony with humility. And then we also see in verse 8 that we are to be sympathetic. To be sympathetic is to be understanding. It's to be patient before you respond 
It's to listen well. Related to that is a tender heart. In order to be sympathetic, you must first have a tender heart towards your neighbor. Put yourself in their shoes before you judge, before you respond with your words. What Peter is doing here in verse 8 is he's boxing in this one word. He's boxing it in by showing that sympathy is related to humility. Or excuse me, harmony is related to humility. Sympathy is related to tenderheartedness. And what's in the middle there is a word that we translate brotherly love. Brotherly love. This word is only used twice in the New Testament. And its meaning can be related to love between those of similar or the same physical descent. Or love between those who worship the Lord Jesus. Now that love in its purest form is experienced in the family of God. Those who've trusted in Christ. This brotherly love of putting their needs first. Of putting what they need to thrive ahead of what you need in that very moment. But this love is not exclusive just to Christians. In these verses, Peter is calling us as Christians to be willing to show this brotherly love to our neighbor, which Jesus also commands us to do. So when we do these types of things, we promote goodness and peace in our relationships. So often our interactions with our neighbors are with our words. Take those opportunities to promote goodness and peace. Peter's second command in verse 11 is let him turn away from evil and do good. To turn away from evil and to do good. He gives us his explanation or his exposition of that uh, in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Evil for evil. This is retaliation. This is seeking your own personal justice. This is the way of the world. The world says if you have been wronged, you need to make it right. This idea of retaliation does not promote peace, does not promote goodness. We live in a country where honor shame is the primary worldview, which you need to build up your own personal honor through good works. And if someone wrongs you, then it's your responsibility to right that wrong by retaliating in order to restore your own honor. So a, a way of violence, a way of destruction, and it tears a country apart. We are very close to seeing Ethiopia tear itself apart. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean that literally. So Peter is instructing us here with his own words, which he takes from Jesus. When Jesus tells us, to turn the other cheek. Now, Jesus is not promoting us to be defenseless. He's promoting us to not retaliate, to promote goodness, to promote peace. Our third command comes in verse 11 of Psalm, uh, Psalm 34, where he says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Peter's exposition of this is in the latter part of verse 9 where he says, But on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This word bless here is simply a good word, a good word. 
So when you encounter opposition, whether it's someone sizing you up as a goody two shoes when they don't realize that you just love Jesus or someone misunderstanding your attempts to to love them by sharing the gospel and they retaliate, they push back. You are to share a good word with them. You are to bless them. You're not to take it personally. You're to promote peace and goodness. All of this is within the context of being neighborly, being neighborly. Peter gives us uh, in verse 10 a, a blessing, a blessing. There's a blessing promoting for promoting peace, for doing goodness, for turning the other cheek, for sharing a good word. And it's it's hinted at uh, in verse 10 where he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. This idea of seeing good days is is peace. It's peace with your neighbors. If you are always promoting goodness and promoting peace, then it's likely it's not necessarily guaranteed in every circumstance, but it's likely you will experience that peace. You'll be neighborly. They, they, they won't nitpick you if your kids are crying and disturbing them because they you've built so much capital with them. They're like, I like I like this family. They're 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 sweet to me. They overlook all of my little offenses. They don't nitpick me. So you're promoting peace. That's the first aspect of that blessing. The second is a sure thing, a sure thing. In verse 12, the psalm says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. When you are persecuted for living righteously, when you are misunderstood or ignored, whatever it might be, for living righteously for Christ's sake, not for your own, God is very near to you. There is an intimacy where you only have him. You can't count on the world. You can't count on your neighbors to be there for you always. You have him. And he's personal. He sees you. He stoops over and he beholds his child, his son and his daughter who are living for his namesake. And he hears their prayers. And he helps them along. We are his children. And this is a blessing for us who seek to promote good, promote peace. It's the holiday season. This is a wonderful time of year for many of us who have family, who have friends. But it's a very difficult time of the year for those who do not, who do not have a church family, who do not have neighborly neighbors, friends, family. Use this opportunity to create some sort of seasonal themed goodie basket. You don't have to make it for the whole street, but prayerfully consider who, who do you need to reach out to and make a seasonally themed goodie basket. You don't have to spend a bunch of money, but get something that you think they would like. It's Halloween, so maybe some candy, but include in that a personal note, just thinking of one thing that you're grateful for for that person. One thing about that person that that maybe you want to you want to know, like, hey, I realized I don't know this about you. And share that with them. Knock on their door. If they're not home, leave it there. Include a scripture in that card, something that identifies you not just as a good person, but a follower of Jesus. As a professor of mine said, you need to raise your little Jesus flag 
and let it fly in the wind so that they know who you stand for. And this is a great opportunity this time of year to be neighborly by making this basket, giving it to them, opening that door for a relationship. So our first point is how do we conduct ourselves in this world that responds differently to the message of Christ? Just be neighborly. Wherever God has planted you, do good, promote peace. Our second point is to revere Christ, to revere Christ. Read with me verses 13 through 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. In these verses... We see God teaching us that we are to be supremely loyal to Christ and gently offer a word of real hope in the face of hostility. We are to be supremely loyal to Christ and to be prepared to offer a real word of hope, a concrete word of hope in this world that has rejected Christ, that is rejecting you as a follower of Christ. Paul, uh, Peter begins in verse 13 with a, rhetor a rhetorical question. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? Now, a rhetorical question is meant to pique your interest. And this, no doubt, piqued the interest of Peter's audience as they were currently in persecution. So the blessing is real that doing good, promoting peace, you will reap peace. But it's also real that Satan is manipulating hearts and minds, and there is a negative reaction sometimes to you as a Christian, to the gospel you share. So he's piqued our interest. Okay, so what do we do if we do encounter persecution? He reminds us in verse 14 that if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, don't forget you're blessed. You're blessed. And we just talked about that blessing. God is with you. His arm, so to speak, is around your shoulder. He's walking with you. He is in control of everything. You have nothing to fear from man. We're talking of the Lord Almighty, which we have praised and sang about. The Lord Almighty who conquered sin, who conquered death. The Lord Almighty who will return and who will reign. So who are we to fear in the midst of persecution? We are blessed with his attentive care. And we've been given the gift of prayer. His attentive care is not some abstract thought. It's not some ethereal spirit world in which we have no access to. Talk to him. Pour your heart out to him. Lord, this persecution hurts. Hurts me emotionally. It's hurting my family. It's hurting me physically. It's hurting me financially. Talk to him. Pour your heart out to him. He's your father. He wants to hear from you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to encourage you onward. Peter 
uh, then gives us a command as he quotes Isaiah 8. In verse 14, he's again quoting the Old Testament. In verse 14, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In the book of Isaiah, Peter is bringing this quote. And the context of this quote is we as Christians, we as believers, always have a choice in the face of hostility. Are we going to bend the knee to those who are hostile towards us and obey their wishes by closing our mouth? By maybe running away? Maybe by becoming a chameleon and adopting their habits? Or are we going to fear the Lord, which is a healthy fear? It's this reverence for him. It's this, as I called it, supreme loyalty to Jesus. It's this understanding that in the end, I do not answer to those who are persecuting me. I answer to the one who made me. I answer to the one who loves me so much that he sent his son to bear my wretchedness, to bear the penalty for my sin by bearing the wrath of God. So that I might become a child of God. This life we live now, it's not it. This is the training ground. This is the training ground. God is sanctifying us. He's making us holy. That's his goal. It doesn't happen in an easy arena. This is not an easy arena. But he's given us everything we need. It's our choice. It's our choice to walk with the spirit, to fear God in the face of persecution, or to quench the spirit, to totally ignore him, and to give in to culture, to give in to our peers, to give in to those who don't know Christ and who are sadly under the control of Satan. It's our choice. Peter says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I've used this term, revere Christ, as a helpful way to remember it. It's, it's utmost respect for him. It's, it's a healthy fear. Not, not based in his judgment, but based in his holiness. That he's pure. And he will... Get, he will require an account. He will require an account. So this supreme loyalty towards him. Towards the one who has everything in the palm of his hand. Uh, C.S. Lewis used the image of Christ as a lion. So this image of a lion is not someone that you would take lightly. It's not someone that you would ignore if it was pursuing you. It's someone that you would keep your eye on. You let the lion call the shots. Now, that's just one way to describe Christ. That's not the only way, but it fits well with this idea of fear, a healthy respect. Now, we've never seen Jesus face to face, but he's real, and he is the lion of Judah. 
And he's calling us to revere him supremely. Don't worry about the persecutors. They they will have their day of judgment. And our prayer is that they repent, that they believe in Jesus. And as we be neighborly, as we revere Christ, this strikes a chord in their heart that they don't know what to do with. Here's this person that I'm either being hostile towards or I'm being indifferent towards, but they won't leave me alone. They just love me and I don't know why. And yet. They're continuing onward. This isn't some fad that they're going through. They're persisting in this inhospitable environment. And they see this hope in you. This hope that's been capitalized by politicians. This hope that's capitalized in self-centered ways. But it's this hope that's only located in Jesus Christ. He's the only way, y'all. This hope is is real. This hope is here now. And it's coming presently, and it will be here in its fullest form one day. It is this hope that propels us onward. And Peter, in a few short verses, will describe the foundation for this hope. Christ's death. Jesus is king. God has entrusted all things into his hands. Jesus is building his kingdom. But it is not fully here. Satan still roams around. We still encounter hostility. All of us, myself including, still struggle with the sin within as Pastor Keith and I talked about earlier, chasing after comfort, self-preservation, even valuing your, your children's needs beyond what God's called you to, putting their, their needs as an idol and not trusting them in God's hands, knowing that God loves your children. God made your children. God gave you your children. So God knows what's best for your children. Trusting him with your children. This hope. In which Christ will return. Christ will fully establish his kingdom. We will each get a new body of righteousness. In which you do not struggle with the sin within. You do not struggle with illness or sickness. You will be able to think pure thoughts. And have pure desires for God's glory. God will lift this curse off this earth. We will not have starving children. We will not have corrupt politicians. The seasons will be perfect. The earth will not have violent earthquakes or volcanoes. Righteousness, righteousness, righteousness through and through is what we're waiting for. And this is the hope we live for. Peter tells us what this hope is rooted in. But first, let me share with you two of my students that I'm currently training. Their houses were recently burned down. It wasn't necessarily because they're Christians. It's because in Ethiopia right now, ethnic tensions are so high that even the church is putting them 
ahead of identity in Christ. They're saying, I am this ethnic group. You are that ethnic group. So we hate you. We cannot cross the aisle. We cannot get along. And two of these men's houses were recently burned down. As I was talking with them about their response. They had no issue with seeking reconciliation. That was not what they were struggling with. Their heart was burdened with, well, what if they don't want reconciliation? What if this divide continues? What if they continue to hate us? What do we do from that point? These men were able to have a proper attitude of not retaliating, of not having an issue with reconciliation because they revered Christ as Lord, because they had set him aside in their heart as holy as the supreme reality that trumps all other realities. They had put in their hearts this hope that they were waiting to see come to full fruition. So while it's sad for your house to be burned down, I'm not saying it's not a big deal. They were in a place mentally, emotionally, spiritually to want to reach out to the persecutors because of the pure love they had for Christ and because of the concrete grasp they had of this hope. They got it. So what is this? What is the reason for our hope we see here? Beginning in verse 18. uh, Peter's articulation, it's a very short, it's a very beautiful articulation for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ is righteous. That means he's pure. He can stand before God based on his own character. He stepped in our place as a substitute for those who are unrighteous. We are impure. We cannot stand before God based on our own character. He is holy. We are far, far short. He took the penalty for our unrighteousness, our sin, which is God's wrath. And he bore that wrath on the cross and he died so that we might be reconciled to God, become God's children through faith. It's always by grace through faith. By trusting in Christ alone, by coming to this point in your your life where you realize I can't stand before God based on my own good works, my own character. I'm not good enough. I need Jesus's sacrifice on my behalf. I need him to purify me. I need him to be my advocate to bring me to God. One of the ways that I've been able to make everything I just shared with you. A concrete reality in my life where it's not just something I believe in a corner of my mind, but that it propels me. That it sustains me is through regular evangelism, just putting yourself in a vulnerable situation and striking a conversation. And we can talk about details on how to do that later, but just striking a conversation with people about Jesus and the hope we have in him. 
about the reality of the broken mess we see all around us. And as Nancy shared, it's outside the home, but it's also in the home. No one is immune. And about how trusting in Jesus will bring us total wholeness one day. Complete reconciliation with God who then brings total wholeness. So as you do certain things, you're able to grasp the fruit of those habits. Some habits bring good fruit. This is one such habit. Pastor Keith would be happy to take you evangelizing if you want to learn how to grow in those skills. But as you put yourself in a vulnerable situation, depending upon God's spirit to give you the words, to give you the opportunities to work on their hearts, you begin to really get this hope that we have. You begin to really cling to Christ's death for you because it just works works its way into you as you share the gospel. This is one way that I encourage you to revere Christ in your hearts so that if and when persecution does come, you will be able to respond, as Peter says, with gentleness and with clarity as well through practice, through the discipline. So we've looked so far that we conduct our our lives, ourselves in this world that responds differently to Christ and to Christians. We're neighborly. Just push on, be neighborly, promote good, promote peace, experience that intimacy with God. Secondly, revere Christ. Truly have him on the throne of your heart. And evangelizing is one way to help you grow in your walk with God. As this hope that's thrown around by whoever becomes a reality. that It's now on the front of your mind where you're making decisions based on this hope. Not necessarily based on comfort or self-promotion. Thirdly, how do we conduct ourselves in this world? We anticipate God's vindication. We anticipate God's vindication. Read with me verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days for Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In these verses, God is teaching us that we are to suffer patiently, like Christ and like Noah anticipating God's future vindication of his name and of his children. Vindication is 
God proving his son, his children to be right, to be true, and to be beautiful. That despite the story that the world is telling, this story that God has been telling, this story that Christ enacted in his own blood, and this story that Christians are now sharing, that is right. That is true. That is beautiful. Though it does not correspond with the story that the world is telling, God will pull the shade, so to speak, one day. He will shine light on everything. The Bible tells us God will lay everything bare. Nothing will hide. No one will hide. Christians in Christ will be vindicated. We are to suffer patiently until that day. These verses teach primarily on God's vindication. That is the heart of of these verses. I want to be clear that these verses are not teaching two things that people can misconstrue. The first is God is not teaching us in these verses that once you die you get a second chance before going to hell. That has been misconstrued from these verses. A good Bible reading principle is use clear verses To make unclear verses make sense. Use clear verses to make unclear verses make sense. There are some unclear verses here. A clear verse is Hebrews 9.27, which teaches, For man has been appointed to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's very clear. You die one time, and then you will be judged. So we apply that to this text and realize, that okay, Peter's not teaching us that Christ was giving people a second chance before sending them to hell. Secondly, this this final section is not teaching that baptism by water saves you. It's not teaching. Paul in Ephesians makes it very clear in chapter two, verses eight through nine, that you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of your own. It's not of good works. So you cannot boast. It's a gift from God. So I wanted to be clear on that this morning. Jesus and Noah, they both suffered patiently. Noah was building a gigantic boat in a place that had never seen rain before. All the while proclaiming God's righteousness and our need for faith in him. To receive forgiveness. People thought he was crazy. I can only imagine the comments he received. While he spent however many decades. Building a gigantic boat. In which he proclaimed. Would house animals. And his family. Before the great flood came. He was faithful in preaching that message. He pressed onward. Despite the years of ridicule. He suffered patiently. Why? He knew the flood was coming. He lived his life based on that truth. He was waiting for salvation to come in that boat, which is now a picture of our salvation in Christ. We get on the boat, so to speak, by trusting in Jesus. It's the only boat available. There's no other other boat. 
And then Jesus, who, as David shared today, was like a lamb. And in that Isaiah passage, he he never stirred up trouble simply to be a troublemaker. He wanted to draw people to God. So any harsh word he gave to the Pharisees was to pierce their heart so that they would repent, so that they would turn from the error of their ways. Christ suffered horrifically, yet he never spoke a vile word. As he was hanging on the cross, he prayed to God to forgive his perpetrators. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they have done. He suffered patiently. Why? Well, he's God, obviously. Second, he knew his time of vindication would come. In these verses, we see that he is now at the right hand. Verse 22. Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. That's a position of pure power. Pure power. With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He is vindicated. Christ and Noah suffered patiently in this world that did not accept them. That did not accept their message. That misunderstood them. That persecuted them. They're examples to us to suffer patiently, waiting on God's future vindication. When we as Christians, we will be raised up with Christ. We will reign with Christ on a new earth with a new heaven. In which God dwells with us. In which Satan and all unrighteousness are cast into the lake of fire. That day, that flood, so to speak, is coming so suffer patiently god will vindicate his name and his children so you cannot control your circumstances you cannot control how your neighbors respond to you how your co-workers respond to you how your friends at school respond to you to your attitude to your beliefs to your values but you can control your walk with god Are you revering Christ as Lord in your heart? Are you supremely loyal to him or are you seeking something of this world? Your response to that will impact your walk with God. This morning, we have seen that God calls us to be neighborly. Do good, promote peace. He's called us to revere Christ. May he be supreme in your heart, the supreme value, the only one you truly answer to. The only voice you truly listen to. And look to Christ as our great example for how to do this well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize our utter dependency upon you. We are here representing your name and the name of your son in a world that does not always understand why we do what we do does not always like what we say but we cling to you knowing that your opinion is the only one that matters knowing that you are lord that your son is at your right hand and these realities propel us onward give each of us strength strength of mind and strength of heart 
to grasp these realities and to live them out in this world, keeping our eyes focused on you, knowing that your son will return and you will make all things new. Thank you for City Church Garland. Thank you for the love they have for you. May that love grow. May it blossom. Continue to put forth in them your mighty work that they could reach neighbors, that they could be neighborly, that they could demonstrate what it looks like to hope in a God that we've never seen, but that is the supreme reality. Bless us, O Lord. We need you at all times, and thank you that you draw near to us. Thank you that you are near to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name.